safely climb down from the bamboo pole. That's the right way to do it. In other words, you take care of yourself, I'll take care of myself, and that's the way to do it. So, who was right? So they asked the Buddha, right? They had this conflict. The Buddha's always nearby in these situations. <laughs> I don't know what he'd be doing near a fair. <laughs> uh, so they go to the Buddha, and what does the Buddha say? So before you, that's, this is ancient times. How about for us in our lives, just to make it very real? How many times are we in situations where we're doing something with somebody else, holding something? We have to accomplish a task. We have to achieve something. We have to do something. And what is our attitude? So some of us incline towards what? Just taking care of ourselves, right? That's the best way to do it. Sometimes people are very oriented towards taking care of others. So we can see, and we're going to play with this theme throughout. But right from the start, who do you think was right? From what you know of the... And how many people are, are relatively new to the teachings? I should know that as well here. Okay. How many people are brand new? How many people are really have been around quite a while and got all figured out? <laughs> okay, how many people have been around quite a while? <laughs> okay, so most, a lot of people are in between. Okay, great. So how many people think that the, would side with Meta, with the assistant in this case? Taking care of oneself, you just take care of yourself. Both people do that, and that's the best way to do it. How many people would side with the main acrobat? Okay, so we're about 50-50. Okay, great. Is there another answer? <laughs> how, how many people choose the third avenue, the third road? This is Cambridge. People are smart. Good. <laughs> so I'll read on. <laughs> Just like the assistant Meta said to her master, I will look after myself, so should you, monks or meditators, practice the establishment of mindfulness. You should also practice the establishment of mindfulness by saying, I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, by developing it, by doing it a lot. And how does one look after, after oneself by looking after others? By patience, by non-harming, by loving kindness, by caring. Thus, looking after oneself, one looks after others. And looking after others, one looks after oneself. And uh, I have to add a little footnote, because the translation I brought is missing a paragraph, which says, it, it gives the meta part, right? And it says, yes, by, taking, by being mindful, you take care of yourself and others. But then there should be another paragraph, which says, uh, just the same as, as the acrobat said, by taking care of others, one takes care of oneself. But the punchline is in here, isn't it? So by taking care of oneself, by taking care of oneself, and how do we do that mindfully? 
Taking care of others with what qualities? With care, patience, love. We can summarize those in compassion. So taking care of others, we take care of ourselves. Taking care of ourselves, we take care of others. So I'm going to offer some reflections on this theme tonight. It's sort of, uh, in Buddha's teachings, that we can be free in the present moment. We can discover something very deep inside ourselves that is free. It's often called a, like a declaration of independence, inner independence. And I would consider this sutta a declaration of interdependence. So that it's saying, in our relational world, because this is set in the stage where we're actually, two people are actually doing something together. That our freedom is based on, and our success is based on a respect for interdependence, which is also respect on a, uh, based on a, the respect for independence. So let me back up and just start with the Buddha's teachings. So this, is the, so this is the frame of a relationship. But what, are the, what is the core of the Buddha's teaching? So we have to apply this. We'll, we'll sort of flesh it out piece by piece. We'll look at how we take care of self, classically in practice, and what that does and how that leads into, how we, how we can work with that in different ways, taking care of self through mindfulness, and then how that leads to taking care of others. And then we'll also look at taking care of others an attitude of taking care of others, and we'll see how that supports us taking care of ourselves, mindfulness, okay, mindfully. So the Buddha's teachings are based on a very simple movement, which is in our lives, the capacity to move from a place where we experience suffering, constriction, um, separation that's painful, to one where we experience, well, where these levels of suffering aren't there. Now, it's not saying, so we move from suffering to the end of suffering. It's a very famous teaching the Buddha gave. But to put it in the realistic context of our lives, it means that we can come out from underneath all the different, all the extra layers of suffering that we add onto experience through what? To our habit energies of mind and heart. So when we stub our toe, do we usually stop there and just say, I stub my toe? Or do we go on and blame ourselves for being a klutz? Or blame the city for having that brick half a centimeter higher than the ones around it? So we actually don't, we have to train in the capacity to untangle ourselves from all that we do on top of experience. So we can have a more fresh, clear, direct relationship and so when we do get harmed, that we can actually learn from it. So the Buddha, in his classic teachings, it's suffering in the end of suffering or suffering in the end of unnecessary suffering. Um, but it starts with actually being in touch with that which is seemingly a block to our freedom, to our experience. So it starts with suffering, to look at it. Another way of saying it's turning a bad situation into a good situation. So this is a particular way of looking at caring for self. So often when we think of caring for self, and we can include this, we think of, well, we care for the body, right? How many people shop at Whole Foods? 
a lot. <laughs> I do. Trader Joe's. And how many people do yoga? Jog. Okay, run, swim, jump, skip, dance. No, any. And if you'll take care of themselves, their physical bodies, try to. Okay, so that's one way of taking care of ourselves. And that can alleviate, that can make it so that we'll grow old in a way that's happier and better and we'll enjoy our life more, right? The mind-body connection. The Buddhist teachings are primarily concerned with the element of taking care of the heart and the mind. Now, the heart and the mind lead. The mind leads the body, so they're, not, they're interdependent. You don't, you don't do yoga unless you decide to do it, right? <laughs> so the mind is leading the body anyways. But it's very much concerned with the mind's relationship to experience and learning to take, and this is what the Buddha was considered, he was considered a master of taking a bad situation and turning it into a good situation in terms of the possibility of cultivating a deep inner freedom in relation to experience. So to be deeply mindful and in terms of the metaphor of this, of this teaching, if we're really present and we don't have a lot of obscurations, then we're going to be much more able to actually care for ourselves in the moment with what we need to do. Okay. So taking a bad situation and a good situation. And I said before, it's a, often a declaration of independence that we think of the, the practice as. Well, often we interpret that as uh, being that we're free spirits, which is great. Right? We want to be free inside. But often we take that as, I'm going to be able to control my life in exactly the way that's going to bring me the most pleasure and make me the most happy. And we, often, we live our lives by the pleasure principle. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a big problem that comes in when we get so addicted to that, in a way, that we actually start to perceive and move in a way that is in the face of the realities of life that if we had a different relationship to them, we could actually use them to be free. So we're, we often don't have the capacity, and this is what the training does, to give us a place where we can actually stay steady when discomfort arises and not have to compulsively try to move away from it or to go for the next hit. And it's very hard for us to do that in, this, in our culture because it's, it's the me culture, isn't it? It's the, the gratification culture. And we have so many ways of being gratified that why not just go from thing to thing as best we can? Well, even when we do that, are we happy all the time? Do we find that we don't always get what we want? Things don't always go our way? So there's, we, get, we have constrictions in our life, don't we? Anybody in a committed relationship? Does that have certain parameters and constrictions once you're in it and it's past the romance stage, just, just the honeymoon stage? Right? Or jobs? Or our bodies as they age? There's limitations that are built in, aren't there? Until we're, we have any really young people here? We haven't re realized that yet? <laughs> nope. They're going somewhere sexier. They're on a more sexy spiritual path. <laughs> 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 
So we start with what is difficult. And often what is difficult constricts us and constrains us. And it forces us, if we take it as, if we take it as a challenge, it forces us to find resources inside that we didn't know that we had. And this is the first level of caring for ourselves. So I came to meditation when I was a little kid, actually. I didn't know I was meditating at the time. But I, like probably many of us in this room, uh, came from a house where there was a divorce. So I was a, I was a nice little kid growing up in the idyllic little town of Hanover, New Hampshire, and everything was great. Uh, and had quite a nice privileged life. And then one day, my mother said she was leaving, and she was gone. I was six years old, just like that. So we've all experienced traumas, right? In different ways. Loss. This is just an example. So after that, because we don't like this, I got angry. I started to have more, like, little fits of anger. And, uh, you know, as a six-year-old, I didn't have my mommy around, right? So what my dad would do, and my dad, he was fair, you know, it was okay, and I got a stepmom within a year. You don't need to know my whole family history. (laughs) (laughs) But what my dad would do when we were sitting in the TV room, uh, when I would get in a bad mood, because I was the youngest, and I wanted my mommy, is that, and I got in these little, I didn't have temper tantrums, but they were, I was angry. And so he'd send me me to what he called uh, my funk chair. Does anyone know what a funk chair is? Now you do. Everyone knows what a funk is, or is that out of, is that out of, out of style now? Okay. So I get in these funks, and I, there's this black chair in the corner, and he'd say, you go in that funk chair until you can be nice. <laughs> so I had to go over in the corner, and I'd sit there, and I'd be in my funk. And then after a while, as I recall, I'd close my eyes, and I don't think I was trying to do anything. No one giving me watch your breath or <laughs> wish metta for your father. No. <laughs> I don't think I had any actual tools like that. But after a while, I'd calm down. And then I'd open my eyes and, I'd, and he'd look at me and said, you're okay now. And then I'd come out. I'd have to be in my funk chair. So that was a very primitive example of being in a constricted situation where I found a resource that I didn't know I had. And it actually helped, it actually helped quite a bit. And to be a little more dramatic, um, one of my favorite movies growing up, uh, well, I've seen it a couple of times, maybe not one of my favorites, but up there, was uh, Hurricane Carter. You know that the movie? Bob Dylan wrote a great song. He was this this boxer that was put, uh, put in jail incorrectly, and then he got out about 20 years later. But while he was in jail, and there's many, there's many stories of, like this, he really used his time very, very well. And he developed prayer and meditation, and he came out a very a stronger, more peaceful person inside. So that's really, that was, f- like in my case, it was authority that was forced from the outside, right? My dad's authority. This is the system's authority. Once I gave a talk, when I, I was a, a monk in Thailand um, a long time in the 90s, early 90s, and um, I gave a talk once in, a, uh, in Thai in a prison to about 200 shackled inmates. And I 
told them that there were many similarities between the life of being a, a monk and being in prison. Uh, of course, I also did something bad. I called my mother a horse. Because <laughs> the two words are extraordinarily close in Thai. And I think that was the biggest laugh I got. And I told my, I asked my teacher, I said, what did I do? He said, you just called your mother a horse. I said, okay. <laughs> so, but I gave this, I, I, there was an opportunity, I told people. And then afterwards I felt a little bit like, who are you coming on high, telling people who are in jail, <laughs> that they can use this time well. So these are strong metaphors for actually realizing that constriction, that not just being able to follow what we think we want to get out of suffering or to get pleasure immediately or even strategically a little bit further out, that we can actually, there can be a tremendous strength in that. And this is a starting point for practice in a way, is that we, we make the commitment, even though we have a lot of choices, to learn how through our practice to create a place where we can stay and be with the energy that arises and not be pushed around by it and not be compulsive. Now, in the situation I was talking about, right, like I said, it was, they're nice, they're nice metaphors actually, because like when I'm in my chair, when I was in my little chair as a kid, there's nothing else I had to do. No homework, right? Nothing else, it was simplified. And so really all I was, I was it was a situation where I could just be with what was inside. And it was in, imposed the outside, but in a certain way, when we come here, isn't that what we're doing? We're giving ourselves a little block of simplicity, where we're letting everything else go away and we're just giving ourselves the chance to be with things, be with ourselves, be with the moment exactly as it is. And we go on, we do retreats, it's a longer form of that. So it's a kind of radical simplicity. And that's wonderful, and we're, we're, it's wonderful because we've chosen it. <laughs> so we're choosing actually to do that. And then hopefully when we find that, we can find that simplicity, then we can move out from there. Sometimes what happens, even in the spiritual path, though, is that in the, in the name of self-care, we, we're always jumping from place to place and practice to practice and thing to thing because we equate, we equate practice with even better hits of experience. And we don't equate practice with learning to come to a place where we actually can have a fundamentally different relationship to those things which are compelling us to move. So that's something to, ver to, to watch out for. Now, if the pressure is too much, I mean, it can, be, it can be good to move too, but we don't want to be spiritual dilettantes. I've met plenty of them, and I have some of those tendencies myself too, right? To just have it very free. But the, the goal in this for self-care is actually one that's a little bit different, is to learn how to be present with things that are difficult. Now, if it's too much, then you have to, you have to get out, right? Like there's stories in the Zen monastery, they put themselves in pressure cookers, and there's stories of monks that would climb over the walls in the middle of the night. So that's like if we try to force ourselves and it's too much, then we leave and actually can be good. Now, hopefully they can come back in when they want to train again. So it's not, this, it's not this rigidity, but learning that we have inner resources by taking away and seeing into compulsive patterns of always moving and always looking for the next thing is a starting point for developing the path for self-care in this in this tradition.
So how do we practice then? What, what do we do? We practice mindfulness, which is what? The first phase is to just get some little bit of peace and calm, right? So it's just to watch the breath or to be with sensations in the body or to do something which is not actually looking directly into the stuff, but actually just giving us a little, a little space, giving ourselves a little break. So that's the, first, that's the first part of practice. So just watching the breath is that. How many people just watch the breath? Many people just use that as an anchor, and then sometimes it feels good just to leave it at that, right? You just watch the breath. But then we need to open it up so that we can actually see into. And so if you just, wa- if you just get a little stable place inside, and you have to go there, but you don't, it doesn't transform all of your patterns, which are pulling us and pushing us around. It has limited value. So caring for self can be getting that quiet place inside, but a second stage of caring for self is what I like to call caring for the other in ourself, or the others. Mm-hmm. And so then we open up into a whole inner world of often conflicted energies, oppositional energies, uh, energies that change and move unpredictably. There's a teaching, I think Narayan's given classes on it, called the Eight Worldly Winds, which is um, these forces from the world, which are praise. And just think how these function inside. Praise and blame, uh, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, uh, pleasure, and pain. In one form or another, these are moving very often our psyches. Right? When we, when we have loss, what, how do we feel? <laughs> okay? When we don't have investments in the stock market, you probably feel better now. Three years ago, how'd you feel? Gain and loss. How did that feel emotionally? So we have all these energies of, of anger and sadness and joy and loneliness and all these different movements, all these vicissitudes that are happening all the time. And they often feel like they're other, don't they? Or even our priorities, even our other people, our moods. When we get gripped in a mood and we're in a relationship, oh, watch out for them. Watch, see, they're, they're, they're in a bad mood. Or, oh, look, they're so happy. They're in a good mood. Now I can talk with them, right? So those, when we're in a mood, we're actually gripped by something very powerful that is like, has anyone seen the, the, um, the Lord of the Rings movies or The Hobbit or Gollum? Remember Gollum, that little, little creature? Runs around, and he's at total war with his own psyche. He's like, no, yes, no, kill, no, be nice. So he's... And a friend of mine and, and I kid around about how many different personalities we each have. About just like knowing that there's so many different beings inside of us that are all functioning and all kind of competing for airspace and moving in and out and flowing. And so caring for self and caring for other, the first step out is to start to actually care for these energies that are inside ourselves that are split off. That we suffer when we attach or reject them. And that's the key of what our mindfulness is. 
It's easier to do it on something like the breath, which is very neutral. But as the awareness, ex- as the awareness expands and we open, then we include everything. And so awareness is key. Is, it's a non-judgmental present moment awareness. So we learn to see into these things. So we start to get in touch as we care for ourselves. We're caring for the moment. We're caring for these split off parts of ourselves that move, that are constantly moving. And we allow them to do what they need to do. But we start to embrace them without acting out or rejecting. So one looks after oneself by practicing mindfulness, by developing it, by doing it a lot. So we, when, we, when our mind stabilizes a little, we have to start to get interested and we have to start looking into the nature of our experience and do it a lot. We do it in little bits and then we just prefer not to. Right? And we become... When we don't see things as they're moving, then we just start, we act out again and again uh, very, very unconsciously. So like our equivalent of the monk who has too much, there's too much pressure in the system and you, they, jump over the, they jump over the wall. Our equivalent is we're sitting, let's say we're sitting and watching TV or in front of the computer and then all of a sudden we're back there and half a pint of ice cream is gone. We almost didn't know that we went, we walked to the freezer, we got the ice cream, and we've been downing it pretty quickly. And it feels so good. But why did this happen? It feels good until it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Until we have to do it again, or until the body speaks to us from its reverberations. Okay, okay. You're lactose intolerant. You shouldn't have done that. And that has effects on others, too, but we won't go there. <laughs> so if we're too hard with these energies, then we, we don't deal with them well. We shame ourselves. We, like, we don't, and we, become, we go unconscious because we don't have the right attitude to deal with them. Now, when mindfulness is strong, we can, and we use the breath as much as we can. But it's also very helpful to bring the attitude towards other into working with these parts of ourselves. It helps quite a bit. So from the sutta again, how does one look at how does one look after others? By patience, by non-harming, by loving kindness, by caring. And so often the language is used when we practice mindfulness, present moment awareness, to try to bring a quality of mindfulness that is gentle, that is steady. When we return, we come back in a way that's gentle. When something's arising, we try to have some, there's some love in the mindfulness. It's not like, I'm going to be aware of you so that you will go away. So that's actually mixed with aversion. So this attitude, and we can notice it, it's interesting because you can notice it in the tone in which you're practicing or returning. You can see if there's an edge. You can see if there's an edge in your practice, which is hard or a little more soft and open and inclusive. And when it's that way, then we're actually inviting ourselves to care, to be with, to hold the experience. Because I know for me, 
like that angry little dude in there who still comes up sometimes, it just wants love. It just wants to be held. And when the mindfulness is strong and open, it's nourished. It's okay. I don't have to do anything special. It's like I can feel it, but it doesn't have the same power. And the more that mindfulness is both steady and loving and stays right with what's arising, then that, that's what starts to happen. That's where the transformation gets to start. It sees into experience in a, in a way that starts to, to move us, move it, so that we become less compulsively reactive on one level. And actually, more importantly, how much energy is trapped in all these? How much energy that we, the, that we squander in terms of living is trapped when we're living in a split inner world, when we're struggling with these energies, when we're internalizing all the idealizations that have been fed us, when we're getting caught in dogmatic beliefs, when there's, when there's a gap between the way it should be, which is how we half our conversations are around, it should be this way, and then if your friend is, well, it's this way. It should be this way, but it's this way. Now, some of that energy can be good, because if you want to transform things and move them in the world, that can be good to have an ideal of moving in a direction. That marshals energy. But then, right, that's good. But it can be good if it's skillful. But after that, all the extra energy gets caught and trapped because we get caught in all of our mind states that get swirling in this gap. And that sucks our life force out. So that's why the Buddha said he, you turn a bad situation into a good one by learning how to be present and steady enough so you can actually see into life in a way that it gives you energy, gives your life energy, gives the moment energy through clarity, through freshness, rather than taking our energy and blocking us off from life. So Thich Nhat Hanh has a very wonderful, he's a wonderful Zen teacher. Um, and he's from Vietnam, so it's a, it's a Zen tradition, but they're very, very influenced from the mindfulness tradition that we're of. So, um, so his teachings are, are quite, quite a nice balance. And so this is an attitude. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. So this is a very practical way of, of working. Some of the principles I just described. We don't suppress it. We don't run from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness will infiltrate the anger. And so what happens when it, when it gets infiltrated over time? We can start to see into what caused it. We can have insights into where it comes from. He says, if you keep shining your understanding and compassion, then you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So you'll be able to see where it's coming from. And then you can make choice around whether, how to be with it. And the seeing the infiltration itself, it, a lot of times, when we, when we move from suffering to the end of suffering, very immediately in the moment, it's because awareness has met something and it's penetrated it. 
and the power of it dissolves. So one way to talk about it classically is that it's impermanent and we see that. So that a loop, a repetitive loop we have, we see the loop play itself out and then it's gone. But if we have compassion, if we're holding experience with love and awareness is strong, those two meet and then the actual energy, there can be an energy offering. Am I talking, are people with me or is this... Is this too, no, it could be, it could be too esoteric. But is it too esoteric? Good. So people have, show of hands of people who've actually experienced this, where your mindfulness has touched something and there's been a transformation and it's made you more alive and clear and intimate with life. Great. Okay. (laughs) So when that happens, we're caring for what was previously the other in ourself and it no longer is, is it? It's not. It's not split off anymore. And that's wonderful. John Muir, the great naturalist, um, said that there are no fragments in nature. For every fragment is part of a greater whole. So even praise and blame, anger and lust, a lot of oppositional energies, they're actually all part of the flow of life. They're part of the natural elements of life. You know the yin, the yin yang symbol. Well, it's like a it's like a curved teardrop, right? Two of them interlacing, but it's and one is white and one is uh, black, and that's passive and active. And I'm not an expert on it, but I was struck. I saw the image a couple of weeks ago, and I I noticed that I knew it before, but it struck me in this way that inside of like the white element is a black dot and inside the black is the white. So that means that the seeds of the other is in its opposite. And when we can embrace that, and we can embrace it in the whole, because mindfulness can do this with love, with care, with openness, then we no longer get trapped. We can see it in a much wider range. And then we have more flexibility to actually be with these energies, to work with them and not to fight with them so much. So, or as, as Thich Nhat Hanh was saying, they get transformed. So we care for the other in ourselves, and then we, we, the energy becomes us. It's a gift to us. So helping ourselves, we help the other in ourselves, and ha- helping ourselves, we help others. So this was in, in the teaching, it's basically saying you be mindful of yourself, and that takes care of others. Well, how, immediately that does that. If you take care of yourself and you're more peaceful, what does that do for your surrounding? And the classic Buddhist progression, when people ask, like people that are activists say, well, you know, why should I meditate? Or, you know, why should I be being active in the world and meditating? They're opposite. They're not, I can't do that. I said, well, the answer usually is, if you really want to create peace on the outside, it's much more effective if you have peace on the inside. Because oppositional forces keep, the meta- in the way we were just describing it, you actually keep feeding the opposite. If you fight one way, you're feeding that opposite energy. So peace starts at home. The Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, others, very famous. If you want to have a peaceful community, you start with your heart, 
You work with your body, you work with your intimate relationships, you work with your family, you work with your world. So peace starts at home. And so that fits very well with that if you take care of mindfully, then that naturally that will take care of relationships. So how does it do that? Well, when I came out of my funk chair, I was better to be in the family, right? It was, I was nicer to be around for others. I, didn't, I wasn't this little stress ball walking around. Okay? So we take care of ourselves, and we take care of ourselves often in practice by removing ourselves, right? By coming to places like this, by sitting in the morning. We, we, we take care of ourselves by getting space, by, by working to calm and steady our minds, by seeing into these arising phenomena, transforming them, and then we come and we enter into relationship fresh, and there's more connectedness and peacefulness, right? Less reactivity, generally. So that's... Isn't that why we come here sometimes? <laughs> I know one of my, um, and others can tell, you know. I, I know once a long, a student that's been working with me for quite a while in Newburyport, he, I hadn't seen him for quite a while. He's very busy with his business, and he showed up one day and said, oh, I've been working so hard. And I said, how's your wife? And she said, oh, I'm, she's so happy that I'm here. <laughs> she said, it makes such a difference. Now, I don't, I didn't want to get into their dynamics, whether she wants him out of the house, but basically... And no, she's come to some potlucks, I know. <laughs> Basically, she's really happy. He's taking care of himself. So when he comes home, he's in a very different place. So we can remove ourselves. Now, moving a little more deeply into the fire of relationship now. Sometimes when we're in relationship and things are hot, what do we have to do? We have to remove ourselves and get a little mindfulness break, don't we? So... There's a good story of Thich Nhat Hanh, who used to work with Vietnam vets. He probably still does. And he was, he was, in a, he was, he was being, having a lot of anger projected on him on the stage, and he just walked off the stage once. Took it, and he went back, and he did walking meditation until he could let that energy move through him. And then he came back. It was too strong. And I'll tell you part two of working with my mother. So about 30 years after, after I had to use my funk chair... Uh, I was back in this country after a lot of years practicing in Asia, and I wanted to work things out with my mom because we've always loved each other. And actually, when I went to become a monk, she was totally supportive. She said, you're going for all of us. It's so great. So she has a lot of love for me. But I wasn't finished because she took away my love as a kid. So I wanted to work things through, and she was open, and we'd, we'd just have discussions, um, a number of them. You know, it wasn't, we didn't have a, external therapist, but we just tried to be honest and open and use our, as best we could, our skills. And sometimes it would just get too heavy. It would just get too much and I'd start getting reactive and I would just remove myself. I would go and I would do a little mindful walk and I'd breathe. Like I told you the Thich Nhat Hanh story. I didn't know that at the time, but I would do that and I'd come back. And I did it a bunch of times over days of doing pretty intensive work with her. And I didn't know if it was working or not. And then at a certain point in one conversation, she said, she said, Matthew, will you go, will you remove yourself and do the breathing thing? It, it always goes better afterwards. <laughs> so sometimes in the fire, it's good to get out of the fire and then re-enter it, right? But from a different place. Not going away as, as far away as a retreat or a meditation center, but just. Now, sometimes you can do that in, like right in a conversation. You can be there and you feel like you're not listening and you're hot or whatever, and you can actually just settle back. 
and connect in with your breath. You can, and you can do just what Thich Nhat Hanh was describing. You can breathe with as you are actually in the relational moment. So then you're very much caring for self as you're caring for other as you're caring for self in that very moment. How does that go for people? <laughs> That's kind of a tough one, isn't it? But it can work. Simple grounding, like feeling, like right now I just did it in our relationship. I just said, well, what can you do to stay in yourself a little? So I felt my butt. It's just a reflex, and you can train that. You can train it if you feel like you're getting outside of being mindful and being holding space to just touch back in. And if you want to take practice to a level when mindfulness, so mindfulness, we work with body, with breath. We work with all these energies of the mind and the heart. right? We actually work with all everything that arises. Is that you can actually start to have a very intimate relationship with how we're being triggered in relationship in the moment. We can see how thoughts and moods, how they work together, and that right there is where our mindfulness can grow and show up, if we're interested enough, and if our, if our mind is stable enough and open enough. So this is a quote from um, Ute Janiya, who's, uh, has anyone worked with him here? He's a, he's a, a Burmese monk who's, quite wonderful he he teaches on the continuity of awareness versus being like really grounding in objects and then taking interest in how your mind and your heart are showing up right in the fire of your daily life it's, it's a wonderful relational practice he says this is in a Q&A he said in relationship you will see how their how their thoughts so this is, this is one person he's talking to one person about being in relation bringing this into relationship you will see how there, so the other person's thoughts and feelings affect your thoughts and feelings and vice versa. So now you're actually expanding it to be mindful not just of your own reactions, right? But also of what is actually going on in the other person at the same time. You will see how your feelings are influenced by what they say and the way they say it. So you're attuned to the, way, the actual quality of their experience as well. It is important to be aware of your reactions to whatever you experience. So you're seeing how their thoughts and feelings, their facial expression is affecting you. But you're tuned in to the other as you're tuned in to yourself. And you're particularly tuned to, stick, to keep ground in your own experience, to keep ourselves in the field of taking care of ourselves, of mindfulness, is to be particularly aware of our own reactions. And it's quite a dance to do that when we see our thoughts and our moods and our body sensations, how they get riled up and how they move. And it's, it's like an inner fireworks often that goes on. <laughs> but when it's in relationship, you can do it. One way to practice this um, is to practice it while you're watching a TV or a movie. It's a little more neutral. <laughs> but we, the same thing happens. It's a visual stimulus. It happens in dreams, right? It's a stimulus that triggers us, and we go through our thoughts are going, our moods are going, body sensations, pleasure, pain, all these things are going. And so it's a wonderful place to actually, and it's good because then we can kind of invite the fullness of the story, right? But we actually stay attuned to keeping mindfulness in the forefront. 
And so in relationship, we contemplate, and the Buddha said, and here's, here's really pushing the, pushing the envelope where caring for self and other where mindfulness become of one fabric completely, is that he says, with all the mindfulness instructions to be aware of body, of breath, of feelings, of thoughts, of all the different ways we perceive of change, etc., is that we perceive internally, inside ourselves, and externally. So it means that we're actually, when we're in the fullness of mindfulness, it's a real invitation to be open to the outer world as well as being opened and grounded to our inner experience. So what does this bring us to the gateway into? It moves us on the threshold of where we can be authentically start to embrace with the quality of our awareness and practice a quality of empathy. And it's very important to learn to get to know our own suffering and work with it. Because if we do that, and then we start to see it in the world, then we can have, often have authentic empathy with it, for it, rather than having a really deep struggle. If we're still dealing with it as oppositional energy here, that's what we're going to do out there. And so many of our judgments that we make in terms of outer experience, if you look closely, we may not have dealt with them in here that well. So when the inner and the outer, when we can start to embrace this, we get authentic empathy. And practice takes on a whole different level, doesn't it? What does that do? Well, it puts us in a place where in a lot of our personal mindfulness, we're dealing with emotions that are actually emotions about being split off. About, we often feel, if, if we're angry, or we're lonely, or we're sad, that we're the only ones that are experiencing that. We feel separated by it. Many people have told me that, and I've experienced it many times. We don't feel that actually those feelings are part of a common bond that we share with all of humanity. What would it be like if we made that shift? And it has to be experiential. It can't just be, it, it's, it's easy to say, you know, others experience that too, right? But when we start to actually tune into it in others as we're alive for ourselves and tune into it in ourselves when we're the others, then it takes on a whole different field. And then we can become what's called, uh, I think Larry calls it, um, we're compatriots, is that the right word? Compatriots in suffering, in old age, sickness, and all these different qualities that we share in the human condition, that we're actually compadres. Now, what's the right word? We're all, we're all basically, what? Companions, thank you so much. I had to see, right? Compadres, okay. <laughs> you like that, okay. So that we're in it together. And that's that we're in it together. And when we can embrace that attitude, that we're actually not separate, that we're in it together, then that moves from, you know, um, 
try to finish up in about five minutes. That moves from into the other realm where we, we work with other. So we take care of others. And by taking care of others, we, we shift. So that's taking care of ourselves and then expanding it out. There's another way that we can practice and then we're in it together. So that's, that's what compassion is in a way. Compassion is opening or having patience, having loving kindness, caring, embracing the other. So in the going up the pole, you're looking out for the other person. You're seeing, you're attentive to how they actually are and you're being supportive. You're going to work with them to support them as best you can, knowing exactly how they are. So that's, I need a part two on the talk. I need a second one, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it brief the other way. There's another way of practice, which is very, where you start from the outside, you start with others. So taking care of others, we take care of ourselves. And in traditional practice, we don't usually emphasize that so much in the inside tradition, although when you do loving kindness as a practice, then you often do. For those of us who have a metta practice, you can work with others. Well, often we work for ourselves and then it expands out to others and it becomes inclusive. Traditionally, when I trained in Asia, they, the, the traditional trainings are to have uh, ethics, concentration, and wisdom in that order. But before that, before you even clean up your house a bit so you can settle your mind and see clearly, there's the fourth. There, so those are called three, like three trainings. But there's actually a training before, which is there to loosen the heart and the mind, and it's generosity. It's dana. It's the classic word. It's dana. So that it's saying you can't even actually, for a lot of people, you can't even do this work unless your heart has been opened. It's, if your heart is open, just through kind acts, through being, can be material, can be being present for somebody, for being there, it actually has a function of opening the heart. Compassion has a, has a function. Caring has a function of opening the heart. Now, there are plenty of studies that have, there's a big Stanford study, and they actually have a whole um, project on it, the Compassion Project, where they study the health benefits of, of compassion, of having that caring attitude intentionally and working with it. And there's studies been done on life expectancy, where if you have a pet that you care for, you'll likely live longer than if you don't. So there's something that's good for ourselves, just if we're caring. So, it's, so caring for others, we care, we help ourselves, we care for ourselves. And also, it said that uh, in, the, in the study that was done, I thought it was kind of fascinating, that uh, men who took to marriage, some men don't take to it, they're better as bachelors, but men that took to marriage, they lived a lot longer if they, they lived significantly longer if they stayed married. So pets and men do well. <laughs> now women, on the other hand, <laughs> often live longer once. <laughs> Anyways, that's associated. I'm not going to get into that commentary. <laughs> but caring for others can be a way to create the stage where we can, we can, just, we can care for ourselves. And it can, happen, it can help our, our mindfulness naturally. So some of the teachings, and there's some schools like the Dalai Lama, where I call them compa- compassion first school. So we're kind of mindfulness first here. But it moves to compassion naturally. Okay, it moves that openness. 
their compassion first. So, and that's where intention is very, very important. So you're actually, you actually orient yourself towards helping others. That's your, your goal is to... And they're essential. He's, the Dalai Lama says, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. So compassion, love and compassion are necessities. Without them, we cannot survive. So saying there's something not just individually, but as a species, that we actually need to embrace these qualities to, for, the, for, for us to you know, keep going. And finally, he has a wonderful quote that brings everything together, I think. He says, I believe all life is, all suffering is caused by ignorance. People inflict pain on others in the selfish pursuit of their happiness or satisfaction. Yet true happiness comes from a sense of peace and contentment, which in turn must be achieved through the cultivation of altruism, of love and compassion, and elimination of ignorance, selfishness, and greed. So he covers both sides, doesn't he? So saying we need to have compassion and love, but ignorance, all I was describing before the path of mindfulness is that that's undoing ignorance, isn't it? We're undoing unwise clinging. We're, we're seeing into the nature of experience so that we're freed from identifying with it in a way that's just inaccurate and causes suffering. So that together, mindfulness and caring, so caring for others and caring for ourselves, that they invite us into, and I think that's what's really beautiful about this teaching, a very holistic, inclusive quality of holding our practice and holding our dharma, is that when we work here, it expands and nothing's left out. But we can also work here intentionally caring and that this embraces all of life nourishes us and supports our inner unfolding as well so I'd like to end with um, this very simple teaching that that the, the Dharma is considered like a bird that has two wings to fly it has it has two wings and one is the wing of wisdom or matured mindfulness okay and one is the wing of compassion, of love, of care. And that they need to work together. So one, in a way, is caring for self. Right? And one is caring for others. And, but the body that they're carrying is our life. And it's the life that we share. So I want to read the sutta one more time. And I'd like you to reflect now on how you are what you are in your, how you are in your life with your, you know, what, what poles you're climbing with who. <laughs> and whether you're actually caring in our primary relationships and our work relationships, in how we steward our responsibilities at work, our relationship to the planet, all the way down to our bodies, to our minds and hearts. How are we caring for those other elements that are in the, in the movement of life with what we call us, okay? How are we caring for them and how are we caring for ourselves? So see if you can, as you hear the words again, if you can just embrace the fullness and make it very practical and real. Because 
none of us, we are all, we are all in our own way like Siddhartha, aren't we? Like the sutta, like the acrobat and the assistant. But of course, sometimes we're the assistant in certain situations, and we don't like that, but we need to be. And sometimes we're the acrobat. But we're always working together, either whether it's internally with stuff inside ourselves, or whether it's actually with other beings. Okay? So if you can just close your eyes. We'll come to sit for a moment. So once upon a time, meditator, a bamboo acrobat, or you or I, setting himself upon a bamboo pole addressed his assistant, Meta. Come, Meta. Climb up the pole and stand on my shoulders. Okay. And she climbed up the pole and stood on his shoulders. Then the acrobat said to Meta, you look after me and I'll look after you. Thus, with us looking after each other, guarding each other, we'll do what we need to do and climb down the pole. This being said, Meta said, no, that won't do. You look after yourself and I'll look after myself. I'll guard me, you guard you. We'll do what we need to do. We'll climb down the pole. That's how you do it. And the Buddha replied, just as Meta said, I will look after myself. So should you practice the establishment of mindfulness. Just as the acrobat had said, ah, you should practice the establishment of mindfulness. You should also practice the establishment of mindfulness by saying, I will look after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. Looking after, looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others? By looking after oneself, by practicing mindfulness. Do we? By developing it, by doing it a lot. And just as the master or the main acrobat had suggested, we need to look after others to look after ourselves. And how do we do this? by patience, by non-harming, by loving kindness, by caring for others. Thus looking after oneself, one looks after others. And looking after others, one looks after oneself.
Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.